This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. I want to thank really, really everyone that came. It's a, um, you cannot understand what it is. I was trying to explain it. When you do what I do, um, sometimes you feel very lonely. Sometimes you feel very alone. There are times that I fly to Utah or to California where you're sitting on a plane for five, six hours. As you know, I don't have internet. So you just sit there and you, you think and you learn and, and you look in the plane and you don't know anyone in that plane. And you're like, what am I doing here? I'm going to visit one girl. Why am I the one who's visiting this girl? And when you feel very alone, it's a very hard emotion, loneliness. Anyone who goes through it, you should never know from it. But loneliness is like one of the toughest things. The Gemara says that a woman would rather be married to a man who's a mukashchin. Mukashchin is a man who has leprosy and boils and pretty much you can't look at him. She'd rather be married to him than to be alone. Just to be able to have someone to talk to. And along the last 38 years that I'm in Chinuch, Baruch Hashem, I have a, a fantastic, amazing wife. And I don't know if she's here, but she's been my partner in this for a very long time. When she got married, she didn't marry into this at all. Um, I wasn't a Rebbe by a long shot. And my Rebbe, Rabbi Gamliel, always says that she gets all the schar because I'm doing what I love to do. But she's a wife and she wants her husband home. And she wants her husband to take care of her kids. It's normal, natural. Wives are very um, possessive. Women are very possessive. They don't want a lot, but whatever they have, it's theirs. Don't mess with their kids, don't mess with their husband. They're like a mama bear. And she gave up pretty much her life, you know, for the world. And she's not the one running around, and she doesn't enjoy the running around. So she gets really a lot of credit for for what I'm doing today. And she's also very pretty, which helps. Oh, she just walked in. There you go. But with, with having a family that's behind you, there are still certain times in a person's life. It's, it's an interesting thing that I learned, and I'm sure everyone in this room understands that. You can be in a room full of people, a room full of people, and feel lonely. And feel like I'm the only one here that gets it, or I'm just... I'm the only one in this room. Nobody really gets what I get. So, people think, Rabbi Wallstein, he doesn't need nothing. When we decided to make the Shabbaton, I thought, really, maybe we have lost it. We haven't done it in three years. There were a lot of people that were very negative. Even people that were pretty close to me. That three years ago when we stopped, we, our novel was really 
the second organization that made that made Shabbatones when we started 11 years ago. I actually learned about Shabbatones from an organization called Hashivenu that was run by the Zakatinskis. They were the first. We were the second. So we were like the only Shabbaton in town. So 1,000 people showed up, 900 people showed up. But when I decided to make the Shabbaton, everyone's like, it's not what it used to be, Rabbi. Every week there's another Shabbaton. This Chafetz Chaim, there's that good convention, there's partners in Torah, there's a Keraf Tuni, there's, there's so many Shabbatons, no one's coming. And my office staff began to make phone calls. This school, that school, we reached out to every school. Nobody, nobody reacting. Emails, nobody reacting. And I'm sitting in my office and I'm like, what am I doing? If the people don't want it, what am I doing? Why am I wasting my time? And Kachaya, two weeks before the Shabbaton, there's 30, everyone in this room knows when you made your reservations. It wasn't two weeks ago. It was within the last two weeks or three weeks. This is being planned already for a long time. So I sat in my office and I felt very alone. I was like, I want to do something for Kleistrol. Kleistrol doesn't want it. We're going to Florida. What am I doing? And as each person made a reservation, and as people from Chicago and from all over the place said, Rabbi Wallstein, we're behind you, we're coming. And they dropped everything, every single reservation. Every time a girl walked, my staff walked in and said, these people made a reservation, these people made a reservation, the Namatis, the great from Great Neck, from Montreal, from all over the place. I'm like, there are people who still care. So I'm opening up this, just letting you know that you don't, you think, all right, Wafi, he doesn't need me, he doesn't need anybody. He's got this Ornava going on. Every single person that signed up showed me that you care and that I'm not alone. And for that, I really thank you very much. A person is really never alone. You always have God. You always have HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I asked God one thing for the Shabbaton when we decided to make it. I didn't, I didn't ask Him that we shouldn't lose money because ain't you can't depend on a miracle. So I didn't ask Him for a miracle. I said, God, it's February 3rd. February 3rd, it could really snow. The worst thing that could happen to us is that Friday there's a snowstorm because we got to pay the hotel, we got to pay the caterer, and no one's going to get here. So Hashem, I'm asking you for one thing. Just a nice day Friday. I don't care. Let it snow Shabbos. Let it snow Sunday. Let them all get stuck here. I don't care about that. Just, just make sure they all get here. And you know, today is not like the old days. They give you a week in advance the weather. Not that they're ever right, but, they, you know, it used to be the day before. And I looked at the weather on Tuesday, and it said Friday, sunny, and 36 degrees. And I'm like, God, you don't have to do anything else for me. Thank you very much. But he did a lot more. From all the Shabbatons we've ever had, and I don't say this every time we had a Shabbaton, this was by far, it, 
it just went, I don't want to give Ayin Haaretz because last time I said this, the bus, I said, I don't know if the, who, which girls were in here, but I said it four years ago. I was like, the Shabbaton went so smoothly. It's unbelievable from beginning to end. And the bus on the way home at 12 o'clock broke down. <laughs> so I'm not saying it. But it went very smoothly. Every share on time. And of course, I have to thank my staff. They did not sleep. They did not. Yaki Elephant and all of them. And Ratsy. Ratsy also. Ratsy lost her voice. I didn't know it was catchy, but okay, I never heard of such a thing. But she lost the voice. They really, really worked around the clock. And there were volunteers that helped us. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. So, I just want to end with a thought. This week's Pasha, it says, if you want to know what's going on, always look at the Pasha that you're going to read. So this week's Pasha is a very happy Pasha. It's the Pasha of Az Yashir. It's the Pasha of Kriyas Yamsuf. It's the Pasha of Kleisrael leaving Mitzrayim. But the first Pasik, the first Psukim, and this week's parsha starts off so not well. It says the following: When Paro sent out Klai Yisrael, that's great, right? Hashem did not take them the short way, because that was close. That was if you would have put when you left Mitzrayim. Eretz Yisrael in your ways, right? You were put in your ways. Your ways would have taken you through the Eretz Pelishtim. You would have been in Eretz Yisrael in three days. The terrorist says, no. Hashem said, I'm not taking you that way. Why? Because it's too short. Did anyone ever put in your ways? You want to go back home now? And it says, the shortest way to go will take you this and this. No, let's not go that way. Let's go the longest way. You tell your husband, you're, you're tell, what, what are you talking about? Why would we do that? But the Pesach says, Ki why? Ki Hashem said, The Jews are going to go to war, maybe, and they're going to panic, and they're going to go back to Mitzrayim. So, Hashem took them the long way through the Midbar, What's going on over here? You finally took us out of Mitzrayim. 210 years, we're waiting to get out. We're suffering. We're avadim. We're walking out and God's saying, no, I'm not taking you the short route. I'm taking you the long route. You know why? Because I'm very nervous that if you get attacked, you're all going to run back to Mitzrayim. Why would you all run back to Mitzrayim? What is this? What is Rashi saying? What is, what is the Pussy telling us here? You just got out of Mitzrayim. Why would I run back to Mitzrayim? And this is a lesson that is the most unbelievable lesson in, in psychology, in what I've been speaking about my whole life. What this Pesach is telling us is if you don't have struggle muscle, if you don't have struggle muscle, anytime there's a situation, you're going to turn around and run back to the abuse that you're running from. Or the dysfunction that you're running from. This is God telling Kleistral and us that you just left abusers. 
the most dysfunctional country in the world, Mitzrayim, and I am telling you, you are not ready. You are not ready to deal with it. And if something comes along, you are going to turn around and run back to the abuser. You don't have the strength to fight. What a lesson. And therefore, if you don't have the strength to fight, the smallest thing will make you relapse. This is a crazy Pasek, what it's telling us over here. Hashem is saying, I created you. And I'm telling you that if I take you through the shortcut and I don't give you the time, the 40 years, 40 years in the desert, I don't give you the time to get rid of that slave psychology, the slightest little trauma will throw you back to where you came from. And therefore, you need to learn how to deal with this? How to process it? This is a pasuk in the Torah. So what it's teaching us is that when you struggle and you want to get better right away, and that's why, by the way, ninety percent, ninety percent of drug addicts that go to rehab relapse. And a 30, 28 to 30 day program. 90%. They may have a, a room of 100 guys that come into a rehab because they're doing drugs, they're addicted. After 28 days, because that's normally the first, the first amount of time, they leave and they're great and they're clean and they're, we can do this. Out of those 100, 10 won't relapse. The other 90 will be back. That's why it's a good business. It's a great business. And what's the answer? Why? Too soon. You let them out too soon. They don't have coping skills. So God said, Kleistrel, you're out of a trying. You don't have coping skills. You don't know how to cope with trauma. So if there's a war which is traumatic, you are going to relapse. What is relapse? Going back to Mitzrayim. So you need 40 years of struggle, of mud, no water, no meat, all the things that Kleistrel struggled with. 40 years of struggle. I'm not taking you through the shortcut. But after those 40 years, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. After those 40 years of struggle, you will go to war with the seven strongest armies in the world. Hashem, you're not worried? You're sending us to war with the Canaanim? You're not worried we're going to turn around and go back to Mitzrayim? How come here you're worried? And in 40 years from now, you're telling us go to war with the Amalekim, with the Canaanim, with the biggest armies in the world. The Miraglim came back and said they're giants. And now Hashem, what happened to oh my gosh, they're going to run back to Mitzrayim. How come Hashem's not worried about that? And the answer is that for 40 years they struggled and struggled and learned coping skills. And Hashem said, now, now you're ready. Now you could go to war with the seven biggest armies and you're not turning around. And they went to war and they didn't turn around and they ended up in Eretz Yisrael. So the lesson 
of the first Pusik in Bishalach. We're free. I'm out of this. I'm ready. No. No, you're not ready. You're going to relapse. It takes time and it takes work and it takes struggle. And if you spend that time, whether it's in therapy, whether it's in, in whatever you're doing, but you're working on it and you're working on it, you're like, Hashem, I don't understand. How come I can it right away? And the answer is you've got to build that struggle muscle so that when the trauma or the challenge comes, you're not going to turn around and go back into the behaviors, go back to the abuse. There's a possibility in the Torah. Everything is in the Torah. And I think that this Shabbos that we just had, 30, more than 30, we had 7, 14, 21, we had about 34 together actually with, there was a separate Shabbaton that you didn't even realize was going on at the same time in a different room. I believe the total amount of Shiurim in a 25 hour span of time with 36 shurim in 25 hours, outside of the davening and outside of the concert. So I really believe there were a lot of coping skills given out this Shabbos to help you to continue in this fight for life because it's a fight. We're fighting things every single day. And I, I believe that a Kodesh Baruch Hu would give us the power I believe that the Shabbaton very much gave us the tools so that when the enemy attacks us, we don't turn around and run back into the abuse, back into the Israel, to the abusers, because we don't have the skills. I end my Shabbatons with this story all the time. But every time I tell a story, it sounds different, so you may not recognize it. So the very famous story, a lot of you girls know this, whoever listens to my shurim know this, but it's just worth it because it's such an important point. I learned this from one of my students who's a lawyer. He actually does what I do. He's a Rebbe half a day, and he's a lawyer half a day. And he told me that he went to a class in law school called Coach Your Client. It's called Every Lawyer Has to Go Through It. So the professor gets up, and the professor says, I want to tell you a story. There was a man, he was a big politician, he was very wealthy, and he was accused of murdering a 17-year-old girl. And it was one of the biggest cases in the United States of America. Being that he was very rich and very politically connected, he hired the most famous lawyer in America. This lawyer never, ever lost a case in his life. But he took a lot of money because he was number one. He took a $5 million retainer before the case. $5 million, you got to put it in my account. Of course, this rich politician, he hired him. The other side, the prosecution, is the DA. And what they put up is usually an assistant DA. A young guy just out of law school, and it works in a girl, in a lottery. It's not like we pick you because you're good. Whoever's turn, it's up. And this young guy's turn was up to be prosecutor against the superstar lawyer, the $5 million lawyer. No chance. Everybody in New York Times, New York Post, everybody wrote, there's no chance that the prosecution is going to win. Nobody beats 
this defense lawyer. And they come into the first day, and everybody sits down, the jury sits down, and the lawyer, of course, the final dial lawyer, he's got the bow tie, he's got the whole look, and the assistant DA, the young little guy, whatever, he walks in with his books, you know, and no one's paying him attention. The New York Times, everyone's taking pictures of the big lawyer when he's walking down the hall. And they start the case. And the prosecution gets up, and they're like, our first witness is a lady that heard the girl screaming behind the closed doors. We'd like to bring her up. She sits down, and the prosecutor says, what time did you hear these screams? And the lady says, three o'clock. Okay? And you sure you heard a girl scream? Yes. He sits down, cross-examination. The defense lawyer gets up and says to the lady, what kind of watch are you wearing? A cheap Timex. Was that the watch you were wearing when you heard the girl scream? Yes. Is it possible that it wasn't 3 o'clock, but it was 2.59? Possible. Maybe 3.01. Possible. Okay, I rest my case. What? He's cross-examining a watch? The whole week, this $5 million lawyer is making chesek of the whole case. He's asking, what was the weather? Was the sun in the middle of the sky? Nothing. And the poor politician is sitting there. He paid $5 million for this guy. He's like, this guy's going sugar. He's going to get me killed. They're going to give me the electric chair. What is he doing? He says, hey, you hired me? Let me do my job. Meanwhile, the New York Times, everybody's writing that he must have had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> they have never seen... A lawyer like this guy, he's not doing anything. He's not doing anything. End of the case, the politician is sweating. He did nothing. He did nothing. He crossed the exam for five minutes. And the judge says, summation. Summation's at the end of the case. Each lawyer presents what he proved. Now this young kid, everyone's starting to take pictures of him. Because if he beats him, he's going to be the next biggest lawyer. So this kid's now thinking about the bow tie. You know, the, this DA, he's thinking like, whoa, this is going to be a big case for me. I beat him. It's going to be amazing. So he straddles in, and he walks over to the jury. And he's like, men and women of the jury, that man sitting there, the accused, that accused murderer, do you realize what he did to this girl? She's never going to be at the prom. She's never going to get married. She's never going to have children. He took her life away. You must find him guilty of murder, punishable by death. And he's like, and the jury's sitting there like, we're going to take care of this guy. He is so guilty. And he sits down, he's feeling really good about himself. And now the defense lawyer gets up and everyone's like, eh, he didn't do anything. So he gets up, summation, and he turns to the judge and he says, so I heard they wrote about me that I had a nervous breakdown. And you're all wondering why I didn't do any good defense. Says, let me tell you what's really going on here. Did you ever find the, her body? We didn't find her body. Do you know why we didn't find her body? Because she called me on the first day of the case. And she said, nobody shot me, nobody killed me. I ran away from my parents. I'm 17, and I went to Mexico. And he says, do you know what's going on in New York? There's a huge case that you were murdered. 
get on a plane and get back here. There's a man, my client, that could get the death penalty. What are you doing in Mexico? She said, listen, Mr. Lawyer, I don't know who you are, but I'm on vacation. I am not leaving Mexico. He says, listen, Friday is the last day of the case. You've got to show up. He says, okay, I'm going to spend a week in Mexico, and I'm going to show up. He says, and I'll tell you the truth. She called me this morning, and she told me she's going to be here at 2 o'clock. So I decided, when am I going to waste everybody's time a whole week? There's no one, there's no one, no one got killed here. So I moved to the judge, if you could just give me till 2 o'clock. It was 1 o'clock at that point. The, the place is flipping out. The, the DA who was prosecuting, he's, he's going to look so stupid. When she walks in, he, he's never going to be able to show his face in a courtroom again. And the New York Times and everybody's like, unbelievable how that he knew this. Everyone's going crazy. The judge says, okay, we'll start at uh, 2 o'clock whatever, when she's supposed to be here. You have, a, you have an hour off, everybody. Everybody takes off an hour. They come back. It's 2 o'clock. Right? I said, you're going to be here at 2 o'clock. And they're all sitting there. And it's 2.15. And it's 2.30. And all of a sudden, the door in the back of the room opens up. And everybody jumps. Because here's the guy. In was the clerk. The court clerk. Because they change it. I was an older lady. And they're like, oh. The three, three o'clock, nothing. Judge, like, I don't understand what's going on over here. Listen, lawyer, no games. If she comes, she comes. In the meanwhile, summation. So the lawyer gets up. It's a very ridiculous story. It's a crazy story. He gets up and he turns to the jury. And the jury, you know, they, they were going to kill him. Then she's coming into the room. They're like, I can't believe I would have been so wrong. He turns to the jury and he says the following. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the American law is, before you can find the accused guilty, the case must be proven 100% beyond a reasonable doubt. Do you know that law, jury? Yes, everyone knows that law. Is it true or not true, members of the jury and you judge, that for the last hour, you were all looking at the door Yes, we were. And when the door opened at 2.30, you thought it was her. You jumped. Yes, we did. Well, that means that the prosecuting lawyer did not prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Because had he proved it beyond a reasonable doubt, you wouldn't have even looked at the door. So that meant that you had some doubt. You thought she might walk in. Therefore, you must find my client not guilty. Brilliant. He fooled them all. That's the law. So the judge turns to the jury and he says, I guess that's why they pay him the money they pay him. <laughs> you have to go into the jury room. It is true. We all thought she was coming through the door, which means that the prosecution did not prove their case. And they go into the room. And they come out a half an hour later. And the times and everybody's watching... Forget it. They can't say guilty. It wasn't proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And the jury person gets up and she says, we find the accused guilty. Murder. First degree. And the judge is like, 
No, you can't. You can't do this in my courtroom. You can't. He was right what he said. We all looked in the room when she walked in. See, he just walked in at the right time. We all jumped up. So the jury person says, it wasn't my decision that we found him guilty. I'd like you to meet the person who talked us into it. And he points to a young lady, 21-year-old young lady, and she stands up. And the judge says, okay, young lady, how could you have proved guilty if everybody was looking at the door? And she says, sir, while everyone in the courtroom was looking at the door, I was looking at the accused. And for the whole hour, he never turned around to look at the door. And when the door opened, he did not turn around to look at the door, which meant that he knew she was not coming through that door. And the only way that he could know that she wasn't coming through that door is because he murdered her. Guilty. And the lawyer, the $5 million lawyer, who was brilliant, he had them all, runs over to this, the accused, and he picks him up and he says, you idiot! Why did you turn around for one minute? And then you would have been found innocent. And the guy looks up at the $5 million lawyer and he says, why didn't you tell me what you were doing? <laughs> says the professor to the law's class, Coach the client. You can be the most brilliant lawyer. Tell them what you're going to do. What a story. What a case. What an amazing girl. And instead of looking at the door, she was watching the accused. Now, this is not a law class. Why am I telling you this story? 36 lawyers got up the Shabbos. 36 shiurim. But if you don't change your life, if you don't turn around and look at the door in your soul and your heart, if you don't turn around, that means that you are guilty, that you really don't believe anything you heard. If there's no change after this Shabbaton, that means that you know that you can't change. Chas v'shalom. And then all 36 lawyers, and I hired this Shabbos, the 36 best lawyers in the world, to give you shiurim, to give you chizik. If you walk out of this Shabbaton the same way you walked in, just sitting there and not turning around, that means that you know that your Yeshua is not coming through that door. And if you, anyone in this room knows that your Yeshua is not coming through that door, that means you killed her. You killed him. So you got to make a change. I'm not telling you what the change is. I'm not telling you you should throw out your iPhones. Maybe. (laughs) I'm not telling you you should have more respect for your parents. Surely. I'm not telling you that husbands and wives should have better shalom bias. Surely. Something has to change. And don't be upset if everything doesn't happen right away. As we see from this week's parsha, he didn't take us right away. 
he took us the long way. Because he knew that if he took us the long way, we'd have the power, the strength, and the coping skills to deal with all the wars in our life. Have an amazing week, an amazing year, Mitzvah Hashem. Next year, the Shabbaton should be in Yerushalayim. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.